2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nolte State lawmakers have until midnight before the regular legislative session ends. Will a bill to legalize cannabis make it to Governor Lamont's desk? Media reports say it's unclear if the House has the votes. And Republicans have said they may filibuster to run out the clock. If that happens, General Assembly leaders say a special session could be called. Today where we live we talk with State Senator Gary Winfield who led debate in his chamber Tuesday morning when lawmakers narrowly passed a bill to legalize recreational marijuana. He's also been at the center of discussions to make equity a main component of legalization efforts. Now, what questions do you have for him? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. State Senator Gary Winfield again is a Democrat. He represents the 10th district in New Haven and West Haven. He's also co-chair of the General Assembly's Judiciary Committee. Senator, welcome back to the show.
3: Thank you. Uh, Good morning.
2: Let's talk about uh, what happened early Tuesday morning, a proposal legalizing recreational cannabis in Connecticut uh, passed uh, by 19 to 17 vote. Why so close, Senator?
3: Uh, I think in the General Assembly, uh, despite what the numbers seem to indicate about the uh, public, uh, there is the notion that uh, we may be doing something the public doesn't want us to do. I I would actually say that uh, on a lot of the issues that we take up, um, you know, we don't have numbers and and people uh, in the General Assembly tend to kind of think what they hear from their constituency. But here uh, we have a sense of what the the public thinks on this policy. But, you know, the General Assembly is an interesting place and uh, on the issue of cannabis, which has been an issue for many years in the General Assembly, we just have a tendency uh, to have a disagreement with the public.
2: Uh, what's interesting about the vote in the Senate, there were six Democrats who voted with another 11 Republicans in opposition. And then there was one Republican who, who voted in support. And so I'm just wanted you to talk through you know, some of what your colleagues uh, are still fearful uh, who uh, uh, say they don't wanna see recreational cannabis in our state.
3: I think that there, there's a lot of information out there. Not all of it is um, as valid as, as people uh, think it is. So if you were watching a debate, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about what the science would tell you. Uh, I, I made efforts to indicate to those who were uh, putting that information out that it might not mean what they think it means. We, cannabis is a Schedule One drug. Uh, we're not doing direct research on cannabis. We're doing surveys, and that's, a, that's information that's useful. Uh, but I don't think that everybody who's involved in this understands that the information that they're putting forward about the research is uh, researched the way that they they believe that it is. And, you know, those things impact people's uh, perspective. There's a lot of talk about the usage amongst teens. Uh, as I pointed out during the debate, uh, there have been plenty of studies, but the studies done by state's departments of public health and the recent study that came out in May uh, conducted by um, the Department of Education, the Federal Department of Education, indicates that Uh, what people are saying about the increase is not accurate. But when you have those uh, things in the discussion, they have impact. Uh, And when you have the voices in the discussion that have been the loudest, which are those who do not want to uh, do this, other people believe it if it's the right thing, that we're going to do it, which is another another thing you might want to talk about with the General Assembly. But when Mm -hmm. you have those voices very loud in the conversation, um, it matters. And it impacts whether or not uh, public policy is enacted.
2: Now you're part of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus again, pushing for equity. But your colleagues, Senator Moore, uh, Senator McCrory, Senator Miller, they all seemed reluctant to vote yes uh, Tuesday morning. Uh, tell us, uh, you know, what was going on with uh, their thinking, and are there some issues with this bill still uh, that is hard for some to support?
3: So I, I would be careful about the, uh, the 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 notion that. They necessarily had issues with the bill um, that would have precluded them from voting for it. What uh, I'm not going to speak for them, but I will also say this if, if people were watching, uh, particularly Senator McCrory, uh, mm-hmm. at one point late in a debate, uh, got up with a very short speech in which he said, This is a good bill, we should pass it. So uh, that would indicate that though his vote took a while to uh, manifest, he was always uh, in support. There was a lot going on. Uh, in the chamber and I was, I was in a chamber, so I wasn't, uh, wherever other legislators were, but there was a lot going on. And, and sometimes, uh, you know, for various reasons, people take a while of old, the conversation going on. So I, I can't really characterize that, but I would be mm. careful about thinking, uh, that, uh, Senator McCrory, Senator Moore, Senator Miller, um, were hesitant to vote, and and I would suggest to people that if they believe that they might want to have a direct conversation with those individuals. Mm.
2: So let's talk about what is exactly in this bill uh, when we talk about equity, Senator.
3: Yeah, so uh, during the, maybe, maybe it's important to talk about how we got there too. During uh, the conversation, which as I suggested started several years ago, uh, there was this notion that uh, all we were going to do was legalize cannabis um, and clean records. Um, and maybe some monies might go to communities to help, maybe they wouldn't, uh, maybe they would be directed, maybe they wouldn't. And as this conversation has developed and we've watched what has happened in other states in terms of efforts towards equity, we've realized that um, access doesn't necessarily mean that you can actually get into the industry. Access doesn't mean that you uh, have capital. So as the As we were negotiating and trying to figure this out, we had ever present the notion that we had to at least make substantial uh, uh, efforts to make sure that there is an end into the industry. And so uh, we struggled mightily, I think, uh, with the definition of uh, the equity applicants and um, what how many uh, what communities we were talking about. How many years they might have to be in these communities those sorts of things and if you look at the definition of the equity applicant you'll see baked into the definition uh all of these elements right so you you will see that uh we're talking about communities that have been uh disproportionately impacted by uh what we typically call the war on drugs or so the certain arrest rates built built in uh communities where people uh, are not uh making exorbitant salaries so there's. Uh, Uh, the notion of an economy is built into the definition. Uh, All of the things we've been talking about, and we think that we finally came to the right mix of things that in combination are likely to land you in the communities we're talking about. We use census tracts as well. Um, We were concerned about having a lottery in which, uh, again, you have access, but you never even really get into the lottery. So we set aside 50% of the uh, initial... uh, licenses for equity applicants. Uh, and really what we were trying to do was say, we don't want this to look like it's equity and not be equity. We also have a fund uh, that the Social Equity uh, Council will have uh, the ability to look at it and make sure that we continue to do programming and things to keep people in uh, in the process as, as this goes along. I
2: understand that's a 15 person social equity council who would sit on that council senator
3: uh so (laughs) that's a great question and i'm trying to do this from memory but uh you would have appointments the kind of general appointments that you uh get in a lot of the the uh things that we do in a general assembly where they come through the leadership they have requirements such as having spent a certain amount of time uh doing uh, social equity work and having a certain backgrounds. So you have an appointment from the uh, the head of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus. The governor gets uh, four appointments and then you have the DCP, OPM and, and those people. So um, it's a, uh, and, and also by the way uh, there is a, a section right after the laying out of who's on it that suggests that what one of the things that's important about Uh, The council is that they are, uh, there's an effort to make the council reflective of the diversity of the state. So in combination, we think that uh, the council would have a perspective that would be different than if you're talking 10, 15 years ago, an appointment of one of these councils that we felt would be largely white and male and might miss uh, some of the uh, important aspects of what they were doing.
2: You're hearing State Senator Gary Winfield here on Where We Live. He represents the 10th District. He's co-chair of the General Assembly's Judiciary Committee. Today is the last day of the regular regular legislative session. We've been talking about this bill to legalize cannabis in our state. Uh, this, the House still needs to vote uh, before this heads to Governor Lamont's desk. There are questions of whether that, will, that vote will happen. Uh, Republicans have said they may filibuster. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. John's calling in from Hartford. John, go ahead.
4: Yeah, hi. Um, thanks for having me on, Lucy and, and uh, Senator. It's a pleasure to talk to you this morning. I just wanted to make some comments about my frustration with the Republicans who seem to want to filibuster this bill at the same time they're getting drunk on the job. And I'm saying to myself, well, as a medical marijuana patient, um, I am frustrated with the fact that a benign, relatively benign medication and recreational drug is being blocked by a bunch of people who get drunk on the job, and that's really frustrating to me. And another thing is, is I wanted to say about equity, financial equity, and uh, through medical marijuana. And you got—I've heard on the radio that um, you want to learn from other states. And I, as a medical marijuana card holder in Connecticut, am able to. Um, use it in different states and i was uh, recently in maine and maine has this great system where they have a recreational distribution centers and medical distribution centers and my concern with legalization connecticut has always been that my prices are going to jump because medical marijuana is in maine less expensive than um recreational uh, because the taxation is different and my concern is that in this state we're going to get into a situation where medical patients who, and you're talking about equity and and, and people in, in, in demographics and in areas that have been unfairly targeted by the drug wars, is, is people can't afford medical marijuana in this state, let alone mm-hmm. recreational marijuana. And Massachusetts has been an absolute disaster with the price gouging of, of medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. I mean, it's mm-hmm. so expensive in Massachusetts. And and now in Connecticut, we're legalizing sports betting and all these really dangerous habits. And we can't seem we're lagging behind so profuse, mm-hmm. just so badly on the legalization and and marijuana in general. It's, it's really sad mm-hmm. that our state can't get. You know, Republicans are thinking about filibustering this this bill that just we could bring so much financial uh, gain to the state. And so I I wanted to know if you had a comment on that, on everything that I just said. (laughs) Well, that's
2: a lot to unpack, John. Uh, So, Senator, let's first clear something up. So he's referring to there was an incident where uh, lawmakers uh, were allegedly drinking uh, while in session. He's mentioning Republicans, but I just wanted you to to clear up uh, what he's talking about here.
3: Yeah, so I I think at this point, probably most of your audience has, has heard about Uh, these incidences of legislators drinking. Uh, I I can't make too much comment because I wasn't actually there and I don't touch anything while I'm I'm at the Capitol. But the (laughs) Capitol is a place where uh, alcohol in the past has been present. There have been uh, receptions, all kinds of things. So uh, the notion that there might be alcohol present is is real. Uh, What I would say is I, I think the legislators should be careful about what they're doing uh, when they're in that space, we should try to be as clear headed as possible. Let's be honest, right? We're at the end of the session. It's hard to be clear headed just just, just from day to day because of the hours. Um, I do not think though that there is a, a rampant uh, consumption of alcohol and um, bigger than that. I think the point is that, uh, maybe I'm just going a little past your question, to answer his question, Lucy, but I think the point is that um, there is public policy that needs to be enacted and there's an effort underway to, to block uh, even getting to the point where we have a vote on it. Uh, I think the public is owed. I, we've, we've been uh, going back and forth on this issue for many, many years. We finally have a bill uh, that I think uh, is worthy of a debate and I think the public is owed a, a debate and a, and a vote before the end of the session.
2: And as far as uh, worrying that this will uh, make medical marijuana costly uh, this legalization of cannabis address that
3: yeah I, th- I think that I think that's a real concern well, I'll start off with uh, anything that we do is going to have impacts some of those impacts are impacts we can see some of those impacts are impacts we can't see. Some of the things we can see uh, you know it's difficult to do uh, to do everything we need to do about those things until, Uh, those impacts are real. That's unfortunate. I I think that we did think a lot about uh, medical patients. I think that's why, uh, in terms of the homegrown portion of the bill, uh, they they are uh, earlier than the general public. Um, I think that uh, the concern in general about the cost of uh, cannabis and the the notion that some of the Republicans brought up that it foments the black market is why, if you look at taxation under our bill, significantly lower uh, than in other states which is where that problem has arisen but I, I don't claim the bill to be perfect I don't claim any of the bills that I've worked on to be perfect although I wish they were but I think we've made a real effort and I am I will suggest that I will after this passes because at some point it will I will continue to be open to uh, making sure that as we uh, operate under the new law we we make sure we come back and fix those things which have impacts on people mm-hmm.
2: We're going to keep talking with State Senator Gary Winfield right after the break. Uh, there's a budget that also needs to be passed this regular session. We're going to talk about that. And then just to clarify, uh, our caller uh, mentioned, again, Republicans drinking on the job. Uh, that incident came to light. Uh, it was a Democratic representative from Brantford uh, that uh, allegedly had uh, a little bit too much to drink that night, and she blamed stress and wine. I just wanted to clarify that with our listeners. We'll be back right after a short break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live.
5: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare.
3: Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare.
2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today you're hearing from Democratic State Senator Gary Winfield. He's co-chair of the Legislature's Judiciary Committee. Today's the last day of the regular legislative session. Uh, The clock is ticking. Uh, We know that the budget, obviously, a big priority for lawmakers, Senator Winfield. Uh, It passed uh, in the House last night, a two-year, $46 billion state budget. Uh, What's happening in the Senate today? Are you going to vote for this budget proposal?
3: Well, the Senate will be debating the budget today. Obviously, we do we do not want to be the reason why uh, we have to go over. So obviously, there'll be a, a, a vote on the budget. I'm still, um, I, I like to know everything before I finish uh, and vote. Uh, so I'm still in the process of uh, dissecting the budget. Um, and, you know, my vote is contingent upon not only whether or not Uh, There are votes on both sides of the the aisle, but what the budget does in 2017, I voted against um, the budget. I think I stood alone in doing that, but I knew that there were issues, and obviously there were because we came back. Uh, I will tell you that built into my vote is um, exactly what we're talking about with cannabis and and what this budget actually does. That's why I voted against the 2017 uh, budget. Uh, And I'll just say this, Lucy, Um, that's built into everything. We have a lot of stuff that we're trying to get done, not just the budget. In terms of my my committee, we still haven't finished compassionate release, um, which there are issues with in the House. Um, we're waiting on the governor to sign a clean slate bill, and I could go on and on and on. But all of these things, I think, uh, matter and touch each other. And uh, am I likely to, to vote for the budget? Yes. Right. I think uh, there's been a lot of effort. Uh, I think they've tried to get it right. But I would not commit to doing that until um, I'm at the point where that's true.
2: The governor shared a video last night of his presser uh, with uh, media yesterday. He calls this budget, quote, bold and progressive. Would you describe it as such?
3: Um, As you know, I've been involved in a conversation about uh, progressive taxation in the state. Mm -hmm. I think that this budget does many, many good things. My concern is that people who uh, were living lives that needed a lot of help in our state, and many, many people for whom we should be doing more, for whom we should be thinking about what happens after the federal funds go away, uh, may get some temporary relief, but what happens then? It's the reason why that conversation happened. I, I kind of coined that term, equity requires revenue. It does. Um, and while you have a small injection of revenue for now, I think the issue is what happens after this? There was a conversation about, well, you know, we uh, have all of this money with flush with cash. Why is this the time to raise taxes? Because the reality is, when you're not flush with cash you can't raise taxes because the argument is well we don't want to do it now we're struggling and what happens if people don't like it um I, I think let me just say this i think that we shouldn't be trying to figure out what do we do with the money we should be trying to figure out who we are and what do we do based on who we are those are two different questions so uh bold maybe um but i, I think there are still a lot of questions and whether i vote for this or not whether it passes or not Connecticut still has to wrestle with what happens to the citizens of this state who aren't helped long term by these things. Mm
2: -hmm. You're alluding to the efforts by you and others, uh, Democratic lawmakers, to shift some of the tax burden from low income people in our state to more wealthy state residents. We know the governor continues to reject these efforts. And if not now, Senator Winfield, when?
3: That's the question I'm asking. And I'm not getting an answer that's satisfactory to me. That's separate from my vote, but I'm not mm-hmm. getting an answer that satisfies me. I think it's a matter of perspective. I've lived as uh, one of the people that we're talking about. I know that you don't get to live another year. I know that you don't get to um, have people show up and it's like a TV show and they, they fix your problems. You just continue to suffer and suffer and suffer. And the General Assembly and the governor have the ability to fix it. And by, by not addressing this issue, by allowing effective tax rates to continue to be what they are, we are not fixing. It. It's just, that's the truth. Now, are we doing some good things with the budget? Sure, but we're not fixing the underlying problems.
2: You can join our conversation with State Senator Gary Winfield, 888-720-9677. Sean's calling in from Cromwell. Sean, go ahead. Sean, Sorry. are you there? Um, I, go ahead, quickly. Yeah.
4: Um, yeah, my question was about the cannabis bill, but uh, I guess it's still relevant to the budget and that uh, potential revenue. But um my question was I know that a lot of other states had gotten their cannabis provisions through referendums and this in, in Connecticut it was through negotiation through the legislators. And I was wondering, did you guys Take into account that this bill might be a template for other states that want to pass it through the legislature, in particular with social equity provisions. Did you guys keep that in mind when you were negotiating, Senator? Uh, I
3: think that was in the back of the mind. The thing that was in the front of the mind was making sure this bill was actually uh, about the things that we hoped it would be about. But uh, sure, certainly, when you're doing this, and the, the, the way it's been done is through the vote of the public and. You might be the template. You have to have that in mind. So certainly that was part of it.
2: Do you expect a filibuster today in the House, uh, Senator Winfield?
3: I would be surprised if there weren't a filibuster. Um, I hope that the filibuster does end at a certain point and there's a vote. I think, again, it is problematic that you have this bill, you have the efforts made around it, and the general public doesn't get a vote. Let Let the bill get voted on
2: did you want to clear up this last-minute provision that was taken out i know this is something that representative candelore and others are pointing to uh, they see this is why that they, they want to filibuster as well as just being opposed to legalizing cannabis can you clear that up for our listeners
3: well i, I what i will say on, on that is it did get taken out of the bill yes. uh um, you, you know look that happens on a lot of bills so uh, to point to that as a reason not to vote on this i think it's actually ridiculous. Uh, look, you're, you're, you're filibustering the bill for a provision. is not in the bill. Uh, your audience can decide if that makes sense. It doesn't make sense to me.
2: Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. You talked about com- compassionate release. There's still work to be done. Do you anticipate that that's going to die this session because there's only so much time and other competing interests here?
3: Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen. But we just came out of COVID. I wrote that to fix the the flaws we have in state law that we were talking about. You know this, Lucy. We were talking about the inability to get people out. Uh, but the governor's office uh, apparently disagrees with me, and that has impact on what the uh, the the house will do because it's already passed the senate. Um, similarly, you know we're waiting on the the signing of the clean slate and hoping that the governor actually does that because. Uh, we've moved forward with good policy. And I could go down a a list of things, stop solitary, et cetera. There's a lot that is um, in motion right now. And and hopefully the resolution is positive.
2: Let's talk about clean slate. So both chambers have approved this bill. It erases the criminal records of, of some years after the release from jail. And I want you to talk about why this is needed. What are you hearing from the governor about not signing this yet?
3: I don't know what the governor is going to do. I'm just advocating for him to sign it. I think that it's passed both chambers. The legislature has spoken on this issue. The importance of it is that we have people coming out of our prisons who will be in society with us. We want those people to be as whole as possible. We don't want them to be struggling to find housing. We don't want them to be struggling to find employment. We don't want them to be struggling. We want them to be less likely to commit crimes. The policy we have had, despite what people think, does not make us safer, it makes us less safe. We want to get people to a place where they are stable, able to participate as citizens, and that's how you reduce recidivism. This is the policy the governor must sign if he believes that he wants to have a state that is safe.
2: I'd love to ask the governor that question as well, but he hasn't yet uh, taken up, us up on the offer to be on the show in a while, Senator. But something I do know is the governor has expressed in the past concerns about expunging records of felony convictions, especially those related to violence. Do you think that's what's, what's holding this up?
3: Well, we took a lot of that out of the bill. And I would just say this as commentary on on that notion. Those who have committed those crimes are out just like those who've committed non uh, nonviolent crimes. We want all of those people to be whole. We are not saying you don't go to prison. We are not saying you don't have a period of time where, uh, you still have your record, but after a certain period of time, you're no more likely to commit a crime. And the only thing, you know, by having that record is that they committed a crime in the past, you know, nothing about the person who's in front of you. So why would the society make itself less safe to hold on to that information that doesn't actually give them what they think it does?
2: Picking up on the idea that people do go back home, they're not incarcerated uh, for, at least most people are not incarcerated for, uh, you know, life sentences. And we think about um, some of the, the uh, policies, some of the practices in our state prisons, again, both the Senate and House approved or limiting the use of solitary confinement. Why was this needed, Senator?
3: I think if you want to talk about who comes back out, damaging people mentally, uh, which is what solitary confinement has a tendency to do, is not a good practice. Uh, as you as I believe, you know, Lucy, we brought a mock uh, cell to the uh, Capitol in the past uh, multiple times. Uh, I've been the cell for hours. I'm the only one to do that. I think the longest time besides me was 17 minutes and legislators who had the ability to open the door, who knew it wasn't real couldn't stay in there yet we put people into these places for up to 23 hours a day I don't know how you could put a person into a cell that you uh, think they could be there for 23 hours a day in the way and for whatever period of time that we choose to the way that currently works although there are there are some internal restrictions around it how you could do that and then not even stay in there for 30 minutes and think that's good public policy it's not we we can use solitary in a way that allows for the things that are necessary without overusing solitary. This bill that we passed was not a bill to end solitary confinement, but to regulate it in such a way as to think about the impacts on the people who, again, will be coming back out into our society damaged because of our public policy.
2: Let's talk about the limits because you know, uh, as well as anyone, the DOC, Department of Correction, arguing that it's administrative segregation. When it's used properly, it makes jails more safe. It removes uh, incarcerated people who are acting out. So, what options remain for correction officers? I mean, if, if they're dealing with somebody who is violent.
3: So, let me first say uh, that uh, the, the bill originally was uh, trying to get us to the point where we had uh, eight hours a day out of the cell. Uh, At the end of the the day, I rewrote uh, the bill, listening to the concerns of the Department of Corrections, where we start off with uh, those who aren't in restrictive housing getting six and a half hours out. And that happens actually uh, July 1 of 2022, uh, giving the department time to come back and uh, engage in a conversation about um, how this works, whether it would work or not, and what we might need to do to adjust. In 2023, uh, one year later, those in restrictive housing will get the same six and a half hours. The point of uh, the the date being put off was, one, we realized that we need to do something about solitary confinement. That conversation has happened for many, many years, but the department has said, for years, we're going to come back to you. We're going to have the conversation and have it. So putting the date off till the end of the next session puts this option in place. Either you come back and have a real conversation, and if we agree, we make modifications to the law, or... Because you have refused for over a decade, at least as far as my, my part in this, for, for over a decade to have a real conversation, this is what will go into law. Mm. Right. So it's not the legislature saying, hey, you know what, just do it now. That's not what we're saying. Mm. What we're saying is we want to have a real conversation. We've been telling you that you refused. Now you must engage in the conversation.
2: You've been a real leader on racial justice issues uh, for some time. A, l- a lot of listeners, uh, when you're on, comment about the work that you're doing and all of your efforts. I'm wondering, would you ever run for governor, Senator?
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, it is a conversation that has come up multiple times. Uh, I don't know how much time we had, but let me say, when I started doing this and it first started coming up, it was something that I was, given my background, I made like, no, right? I-, I can't believe that I'm a state senator. Uh, but as time has gone on, uh, it is something that I that I consider. Um, you know, so we don't know what the future holds, but I am no longer saying that's not an option. Mm.
2: Do you think Governor Lamont should run for reelection, Senator?
3: Uh, I'm not going to comment on whether he should or shouldn't. I will say he's running, and uh, my support will be contingent on my analysis of uh, the whole of what Governor Lamont has done for the state of Connecticut. <laughs>
2: Well, we'd love to keep talking with you, State Senator Gary Winfield. We thank you for your time again. This is the last day of the legislative session. We know you're busy, and we hope to talk with you again soon.
3: Thank you for having me again, Lucy.
2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. Coming up, we're going to hear from CT News Junkie columnist Susan Bigelow. First, it's Connecticut Public Radio's end of the fiscal year drive. We could actually end this drive early with your support. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more.
0: Hi, I'm Betsy Kaplan. I'm one of the producers on The Colin McElroy Show, and I'm here with Ali Oshinsky, who is a reporter here at the station, uh, asking you to take a couple minutes from Where We Live, if you like what you're hearing, um, and support the station. You know, I figure if you're tuning into Where We Live, then um, you may be a regular listener and you kind of like the in-depth conversation that Where We Live brings you. Um, they often have a national, sometimes international focus, but they always sort of bring it back to how it affects us here in the state, which always makes it even seem a little bit more relevant. You know, we follow the national news, but it's really great to know how it affects you directly here in the state. So if you appreciate this um, as we do here at the station, give us a call at one 800 584 2788 or go online at WNPR.org slash donate. Yes,
1: totally true. And I am I am here today with Betsy Paplin, the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe show, who um, has just been a, a wonderful guide and model in the talk show department. Um, and and Betsy, I think like for listeners who kind of don't understand what goes on behind the scenes, I always like to use Fun Drive to educate them that producers are hustling, and there's two or three producers on each of our shows. Two, <laughs> two. Okay, <laughs> even more work. Um, and you're doing like real awesome stuff here. You're connecting with awesome journalists and researchers. Um, You're pre-interviewing them, talking to them. I I don't know. I I shouldn't tell you what you're doing. Um, I should tell everyone how hard we've seen you work when we were in the office and and virtually too.
0: Well, thank you. Um, You know, it is a lot of work to be honest with you. Um, I mean, Kat can vouch for that too. She's our board up here who's also uh, with us this morning. Um, You know, it is, it's thinking of ideas, it's developing those ideas um, and finding the right guests to talk about it, you know, speaking to those guests first and then sort of trying to write up a running document that helps our host, um, you know, guide the show, that helps guide the show for the host and of course the host puts in a whole lot of their own magical dust, but at the same time, you know, it's a fair amount of, of work and logistics and um, so yes, so thank you for that, Ali. Um, and that doesn't even get to the work that you do, also as a reporter. So I don't want to diminish that, but the talk shows take a lot of time. So, um, you know, you are think about what you get from these talk shows. You get a lot. So, or you wouldn't be here. So support us if you can. 1-800-584-2788 or go online at wnpr.org. Yeah, and
1: Cat Pastor, I'm sorry to leave you out. So please support Cat Pastor if you can support Betsy Kaplan, support the talk shows at wnpr.org. There's some fun gifts there for you um, and and lots of um, ways to help in any way that you can. I think the most relentless thing about the talk shows and about radio in general is that you have to, there's five days in a week. There's, you know, an hour every morning um, dedicated, you know, on our airwaves to that. And these are our talk show producers who are just like, answering to that clock. Um, and and the other thing, too, is maybe you have a, like a favorite podcast that comes out on a weekly basis. And like, if they want to take a vacation, they just don't have to post it next week, right? Um, it's, <laughs> it's vacation season. Um, but we have a steady stream of content throughout the summer. Um, and you get fresh content all the time on Connecticut Public Radio. So um, if that's something you want to support, call one 800 Five eight four two seven eight eight. So that's one eight hundred five eight four two seven eight eight. And Betsy, that's, that's actually the first time I did that from memory. I've had it written down most. Yeah,
0: good for you. I still have to write it down, no matter how many times I've done this, because I always fear I'm going to get one of those numbers wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, you know, the the other thing I like about where we live, um, in particular, is that they take a lot of callers. You know. Hmm political figures on and political leaders like Governor Lamont, they've had, uh, you know, representatives Rosa DeLauro and Joe Courtney and a whole bunch of other people. Um, So you've, they're literally bringing these people to the community and open up the phones for people to call in and ask questions of these people who are making policy that affects everybody in this state. That's something that I think we take for granted here at Connecticut Public because it's so accessible to talk to political leaders and other thinkers. Um, but it's not something that's done on commercial radio, it's not something that you hear um, really from anywhere else. You have to go through all the red tape of going through a political person's office to get in touch and register your complaint or your opinion or a suggestion. So We do that here. Give us a call. 1-800-584-2788. Or you can go online at wnpr.org donate, get lots of great gifts, and thank you.
2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall We just heard from State Senator Gary Winfield on this last day of the regular legislative session. Now, passing a two-year budget is the biggest task before state lawmakers, but how did they do on other issues this year? Joining us now on Zoom is Susan Bigelow, columnist with CT News Junkie. Susan, so good to talk with you again.
5: Yes, good morning. It's great to be back.
2: So I've got to ask, let's talk first about how Senator Winfield responded to my question about running for governor. I thought it was interesting, uh, the, his response.
5: No, that was that was extremely interesting. It certainly wasn't a no. I wasn't hearing no. He's um, certainly leaving the door open for that, which is, is very interesting indeed. Um, I, I would not be surprised, especially given his raised profile, especially among progressive circles this year. I wouldn't be surprised to make, see him make a run if not next year, then in, in, then four years from now. So yes, uh, he's gonna be one to watch when we're looking at, at governor's races.
2: Let's talk about um, how uh, Democrats in the state and others view Governor Lamont. Uh, you know, there's a coalition out there, not only the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus, but a Recovery for All coalition. that They have real problems with uh, the governor because he's a fiscal moderate. This idea that they want to see him commit to wealth redistribution, this budget that they will be, uh, you know, again weighing before the end of the session tonight. Uh, no real tax hikes. Not something that uh, some in our state are happy with when we come when we think about our democratic governor susan
5: well yeah i mean this is something that progressives want to see is they want to see uh taxes raised on the rich and this is historically like like senator winfield said this is historically something that we've been very 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 hesitant to do and the reasoning being if we tax uh if we tax the rich people too much they might leave and then they'll take all of their money all that tax money and all the money they're already paying away to South Carolina or Florida or wherever. Um, that's ne- not necessarily actually true. Most people, uh, most uh, of our wealthy residents do in fact stay. Uh, but that that fear that we're going to lose them, we're going to lose all that money somehow, is part of what keeps us from doing that. And I think that that's actually part of what, what Governor Lamont is, is hesitant about as well. I don't think that that's necessarily a good policy. Um, because if we're not actually going to raise the revenue that we need to help the neediest among us, then you know we're 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 still, we're just going to be stuck forever.
2: It's interesting. You've written about this. You call it the classic Connecticut conundrum, Susan. It
5: is. It is absolutely. Um, we're so dependent on the wealthy in this state. Uh, we have some of the richest uh, richest towns in the country down on the Gold Coast. Uh, and we're very, very reliant on that tax revenue, on income tax revenue from from those folks. Uh, that unfortunately gives them a great deal of power over us. And that's part of the reason why we don't see a lot of tax increases. I feel like we're so scared of actually taxing them because they have this power over us, because they they we feel like they can take them mo- they can take their money and go. I do believe that we need to actually bite the bullet and do it and actually raise the taxes on them. Because if we don't do it now, if we don't do this, then they're always going to have that power over us and we're never going to actually be able to do it. If they leave, okay. Very few of them will, but if some of them leave, that's what it is. At least we'll have that money and be able to do something good with it for the rest of the people who really need it. And by and large, uh, they won't be leaving. Most of them will in fact stay.
2: I think it's interesting when we, when we think about why people moved here, especially in the pandemic. Uh, a lot of towns, uh, you know, again, high quality of life. They're coming here for a reason. And we never talk about that. We only talk about, you know, the sad story that oh, if we raise or if we change the income tax rate on the wealthy, they're going to leave, Susan.
5: Yeah, we don't talk about the fact that Connecticut is actually a really great place. And there's a lot of fantastic places to live here in Connecticut. And we can see uh, all these people who are coming here from New York and elsewhere are finding this out. We can, our real estate market is is remarkably hot uh, right now. Uh, people are discovering that Connecticut quality of life. They're discovering um, that we have, you know, we have good transport. We have good, decent transportation. We have uh, good public services for the most part. We have, we have great library systems. We have parks and nature always nearby. Uh, good schools for the most part. Um, these are things that people want to have. And there's a lot of great stuff here in Connecticut that we don't really necessarily talk about. There's a lot that would attract people here. There's reasons people are coming here. Um, And it's not just taxes that would scare people away. It's not Mm -hmm. just because these taxes, as people are, are fond of complaining about taxes being too high, taxes aren't scaring them off. Our real estate market is still very hot. People aren't being scared away by the threat of higher taxes.
2: And I have lived in Florida. I'll tell you this, it's overrated. Uh, Nick uh, shared this comment on Facebook. When will we ensure that those who profited so handsomely, especially during this pandemic at the expense of the rest of us, will pay back in taxes the wealth that was taken from us? I'm talking to you, Susan, the, the day after this explosive investigation by ProPublica that analyzed uh, uh-huh. the secret IRS data and covered how the super wealthy game the system they do not pay their fair share. Do you think this uh, investigation and these continuing conversations that Americans are having, will it have any real impact on how our country reforms our tax system?
5: No, um, I think we're too stuck. I think that there's enough people, I think people who are, who are open to raising taxes on the rich already believe this. And the people who are against it are against it, not just because of you know, policy reasons, not just because they all hope to be millionaires Sunday, but also just because of our sort of massive political cultural divide. If you're on one side of that particular divide, you're going to believe in certain things and you're going to not want to see taxes raised just sort of as a, a matter of course. Um, I don't think it helps to I don't think it's going to help move the needle at all. It should. I'm not saying that, that that's logical. It should help move the needle. People should be outraged that billionaires are not paying taxes, uh, that that we all, as you know, regular citizens, pay more in taxes than somebody who's making uh, millions of dollars every day. Um, it should be outrageous. It should be something that that moves the needle. But in our current climate, I, I don't see it happening. Hmm.
2: You know, I wanted to ask uh, you, Susan, as we move on from um, budget talk. Uh, you know, how, how have you been doing in this pandemic? Uh, we know that a lot of uh, the COVID restrictions have been lifted. I see people some wearing masks, some not. Uh, how do you feel? Uh, Connecticut is getting back to what this quote normal is.
5: I'm surprisingly optimistic. I actually felt like I was going to be more and more anxious about all of this. And I still am somewhat anxious, um, but I feel like I feel free to sort of walk outside without my mask. Um, I feel more free to sort of go into stores and, and interact with folks. I, I follow the numbers pretty closely. Um, every week I do a, an analysis and map of what's going on in the state. Our numbers are going down so rapidly that it really does feel like an ending. I hope that it really is. It, it feels like it, I hope that it actually is. Um, so my anxiety about everything, which was sort of sky high about a month ago, has been receding. I'm hoping uh, that I'll be able to find some sort of normality after a couple more weeks of, uh, of numbers decline. But it is hard to get out of this pandemic mindset mm-hmm. uh, where we have to be sort of careful of, of everything. Um, like, I still feel strange about, like, just bringing the groceries right in the house, or I'm, I still have, like, um, hand sanitizer everywhere, and I, you know, uh, there's these sort of little things that we picked up, these little nervous habits and, uh, and genuinely sort of paranoid stuff that we did, even though it was quite justified, uh, that I think will be a little hard to let go of because such, they're so ingrained
0: now.
2: I hear you, Susan. I, I feel the same way. Uh, before we run out of time, you know, we, we do know there are certain pockets uh, in our state, particularly in uh, some of our urban areas where vaccination rates are still lagging. What more can be done uh, to help people understand the science and you know, the importance of getting vaccinated against COVID?
5: Sometimes it's very difficult to reach folks. Um, I'm hoping that the state will continue to work with these communities and find people who are respected and trusted in these communities to help pass along that message. I'm hoping that we'll see uh, vaccination be very easily accessible uh, for people who live in those neighborhoods. It, it's so important, and I think we're not giving it enough attention. We don't want to see an outbreak happen uh, in Hartford or Bridgeport. We don't want to see that take place, and, and sort of these communities have already suffered um, probably more than, than most communities have. So we want to make sure that we're really stepping up the outreach as much as we possibly can to help convince people that vaccination is the right way to go.
2: Susan Bigelow, it's always a pleasure to hear from you. Calmness with CT News Junkie, and I'd love to talk with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nall Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer with help from Robin Doyle Aiken. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. This is the end of the fiscal year pledge drive this week. The good news is if we reach our goal early, no pledge on Friday, help us reach that goal. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you
3: more.
1: You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Allie Oshinsky. I'm here with the esteemed Betsy Kaplan.
0: Oh, stop it!
1: <laughs> I'm gonna shower you with compliments, Betsy, as an amazing talk show producer. And we're listening to the amazing talk show where we live, yes. which is a gem in the state of Connecticut. You know, we have Mystic Seaport, we have um, I don't know the Connecticut River, and we have where we live. I think that uh, those are the, <laughs> right. Those are the three uh, sort of gems of Connecticut. Am I right about that, Betsy? I haven't
0: I haven't heard those limited to the <laughs> gems, but those are the gems, absolutely.
1: Maybe there's seven wonders. So I'm missing a few other things in there too. Um, <laughs> like pet based pizza and um, well, that, that's controversial. I shouldn't say that. So I I will I'll retract that part. But where we live is definitely one of the gems. If you believe that where we live is one of the gems, which I know you do because you're listening and you're listening to Connecticut Public Radio, you can call one eight hundred. 584-2788 there's a nice volunteer on that side of the phone who will take your credit card debit card however you want to donate and then you could decide to get a gift you could decide to go minimalist and not get a gift um and you will support where we live one of the seven wonders of connecticut
0: that's right <laughs> you know we give you some nice gifts there um so we have a brand new one this time now for people who are long listeners maybe you tried to order the prior dog bowl that we offered. And ah. Like it and you complained about it. And yes, it was maybe a little too small and plastic. Um, so we've really gone to great lengths to improve that experience for you. So for $15 a month, you can have our brand new Connecticut Public Pet Bowl being unveiled during this fundraiser only. First time. It's stainless steel this time. It's bigger than the last one. And it's got this really beautiful blue color, which is our new part of the same blue as in the Connecticut Public logo. And on one side it says sit, stay, listen. Uh, And for those of you who want to feel like your purchase has given you another um, benefit, um, it's also going to help pay for medical care for a pet in need at Connecticut Humane Society. So what other reason do you need? You get a great radio station. You're listening to a great talk show right now where we live and lots of other great stuff. And you're also um, getting a gift and making a contribution to a bigger part in society. So 1-800-584-2788 or go online at wnpr.org.
1: And thank you so much for listening. Uh, We really appreciate it. We appreciate your dog listening. Uh, So again, 1-800-584-2788 or go to wnpr.org. You can find the dog bowl there. Um, And thank you so much. Have a great night.
0: I want them to offer a leash next fun ride. So <laughs> so. So one 800 or WNPR.org and thanks.